Are our sermon slides working? Great. Can you imagine what it would be like to fly an Amazonian tribesman with no knowledge of the English language nor any awareness of Western culture to London and to drop him off in the middle of Trafalgar Square and to let him fend for himself? Do you think he would be able to make sense of what he sees as he looks at buses, buildings, bankers, everything would seem so chaotic. Surely he would not know what to think of this, would not know where to go, would not know what to do. That's how one of the ways, one of the illustrations that G.I. Packer serves up for us in his book, Knowing God, he says to do that, that would be a cruel thing to do. But crueler still, he continues, are we to ourselves, if we try to live in this world without the knowledge of the God whose world it is, and indeed the God who runs it. Just as the Amazonian tribesmen would be unable to make sense of Trafalgar Square, so to those in our world who do not know God and what he is doing in the world cannot really expect to make sense of this life. Packer says, to them, the world becomes a strange Mad, painful place. And life in it, a disappointing and unpleasant business, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds them and absolutely no idea of where all of this is heading. Isn't that how many people feel about their lives today, people who do not know Jesus, that certainly is a very, very good description of my life before I became a Christian. The world seems so cruel, so chaotic, so random, so disordered, so full of pain and and disappointment, it's hard to make sense of it all when it does to us seem so random when bad things happen to good people. Even on a grander scale, when a three-year-old child dies within a mile of reaching medical care that could potentially have saved her life in the Horn of Africa. The list, the list would be endless, wouldn't it? Even if we were all to throw in one thing from our lives. To many, it seems that there is no rhyme or reason to life. But, but, what if someone who knew about life and who knew how to make sense of life came to tell us that there is certainly rhyme and that there is certainly reason to life? Like a Londoner who approaches our confused Amazonian saying to him with words that he understands, it's okay, this, this London thing, You know, Trafalgar Square, it might look a bit crazy. It might look a little bit chaotic, but I can explain. It might take a while for you to get it, but let me show you exactly what is happening in this square. I think that's an illustration of exactly what God has done for us to a confused humanity, struggling to make sense of what we see, comes Jesus Christ saying, it's okay. This may look a bit random. 
this may seem to you a little bit chaotic, even painful, but I can explain. Let me show you what this is all about. Let me show you where this life is heading. And I think this is exactly what Paul is telling us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10. Paul has been praising God in this little section here for his glorious grace in giving to those who believe in Jesus every spiritual blessing in Christ. In verse 4, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world to be set apart for him, holy and blameless. In verse 5, predestined to be adopted as his sons, knowing the rights and the privileges of, of, of heirs. In verse 7, that we have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus who died for us so that we could know forgiveness for our sins. And now in verses 9 and 10, a fourth spiritual blessing that we can see there, we have been given wisdom and insight to know what God is doing in human history and to know where all of life is heading and then to live accordingly in the here and now so that actually many more through our sharing of this message and through our spreading of this truth, many more will receive such spiritual blessings in Christ. Here's what I want us to do today. Um, uh, Let me map this out for us. First of all, what I want us to see in verse 9 is that all of history is planned by Jesus, okay? He's the designer. All of history is planned by Jesus. Number two, all of history is heading towards Jesus, okay? He's the destination. And then thirdly, which will largely be application for us in thinking this through, you know, what's, what, what difference does it make that he is the designer and indeed that he is the destination? You know, if that's past and that's future, what, what does this mean for us in the present? That's point three. All of history is steered by Jesus. He is the driver. So number one, history planned by Jesus. Look with me, verse 9. He, okay, that he is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And what we see here at the very heart of verse 9 is a reference to God's will, or God's plan. And it's here that we get The first hint that history is neither meaningless nor purposeless, but actually as the designer, Jesus Christ is the architect of an eternal blueprint. Okay? The architect of an eternal blueprint. I would say it is completely illogical to suggest that the one who is infinitely wise, God, and knows all things to be haphazard in what he creates. It doesn't make sense. God has thought through the creation of the world and indeed the very reason for doing so. I mean, we we would even have the common sense to do that most of the time, I suppose, to draw up some kind of plan for something that we see as that we would like to do and seek to achieve. Maybe you want to go on holiday. What do you do? Well, you figure out where you want to go. You figure out what your budget is and how much you can spend on that. You figure out if you're going to take the kids with you. You know, you, you figure out how you're going to get there. You figure out all sorts of different components like that. It's mapped out. We think it through. God does the very same. It's not haphazard in doing so at all. He's infinitely wise. 
And I think it's also logical to suggest that the one who is infinitely powerful, that is God, would create a world actually without a definite plan. I think what we see here is just quite simply that a blueprint for the ages has been etched out on the drawing board of heaven. And get this, this this is plan A, okay? This is plan A. And there's no plan B. There is no plan B. This is God's infinitely wise, infinitely perfect design. There will be no going back to the drawing board in this regard. God is working his purposes out and God does not make mistakes. There is nothing, I would say, that comes as a surprise to him, to the one who knows what we're going to say, even before a word is on our tongue. I don't think there is, he's going to say, I don't think there's any kind of occurrence in human history where God would respond saying, well, I didn't see that coming. No, he is the architect of an eternal plan. And I think at the end of verse 9, we discover the reason why God's plan indeed will be infallibly fulfilled. It's a plan that is purposed in Christ. Did you see those words? Purposed in Christ. The Greek word here for he purposed literally means to set before oneself. And again, I imagine this as if God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit... Holy Trinity, three in one, lay the blueprint of eternity on, uh, of all of human history on the table and determined in the eternal Son of God, this is what I will do. This is what I am resolving to do and I am determined to do it and I will do it. Why? Because this is pleasing to me. It's according to his what? pleasure. It pleases him. He's the architect of this eternal blueprint. He is also the publisher of eternal grace. Because verse 9 has already told us that this is a mystery. Not mystery in the sense that, that we sometimes understand it. We sometimes think of mystery in the cluedal sense of it. You know, there is something that is hidden, but if you ask the right questions, and if you are perceptive enough, you might come to an understanding of this mystery and then, you know, get there. Well, no, this is a, a mystery in the sense, the, the biblical sense of the word, which means that something is hidden, and it's impossible, actually, impossible to find it out. That is, unless it's revealed to you. And this is what Ephesians 1.9 is telling us, that God has been pleased to make known to us the mystery of his will, to make known what he's doing in human history. How does he make that known? Incredibly. He puts himself in the blueprint. He writes himself, etches himself into the plan. So that we might have a full revelation, as much as our minds can cope with, of the eternal Son of God and of his plan. It's John 1 that contains those mind-blowing words. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, just in case we missed that, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him was life. And that life was the light of men. 
Then verse 14 of chapter 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. He is published for us to see in the very person of Jesus Christ taking on flesh, the eternal Son of God taking on flesh, becoming man, entering man, makes himself known. He came to us. He lived among us. He spoke to us. And he died for us to remove uh, sin from us and spiritual blindness from us. And this to show us that from the very beginning, from the before the dawn of time itself, life Life in this world is not meaningless. It has a purpose. And he, he is very much involved. Very much involved. How privileged are we to see it? That all of history is planned by Jesus. He is the very designer. And that he has made this known to us. He has made the beginning known to us. Well, history is not only planned by Jesus. History is heading, point two, towards Jesus. So he's not only the designer, he is in fact the destination. Look with me, verse 10, and see how Paul, having made us uh, look at the past to see what God has done, as it were, now turns our gaze to the future to see where God is taking us, to see where history is heading. And Paul seems to be telling us in verse 10, that there is, a, there is a predetermined point in the future when the times will have reached their fulfillment, where human history, in essence, will be wrapped up. And look at what he describes as taking place. God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Christ. One head, Christ. What does this mean? Well, to bring all things together suggests quite simply that things are not all that together just now. That all things are currently fractured and broken. I think we see that every day, don't we, in in life, whether it's in our own experience or in the experience of, of others around us. And to understand this fully, we must, we must grasp that, that what Jesus is doing in the end, when he is bringing all things together under his headship, under his kingship, under his rule, that he is bringing about, he is the very agent of what, what we could call a great reversal. So in order to understand what's coming, in other words, we need to actually understand what has happened in human history. There are four simple ways of doing this. Number one, uh, creation. God creates. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. He made man as his masterpiece, as part of that creation. Made him as his, uh, in his image and likeness to know and love God as to, and to act as an ambassador of God, his vice regent of creation. To rule the world and to tend to the world. And in all of this, God said this was very good. 
man walked with God. There was relationship there. And Eden was glorious. There was no disease, no pain, no earthquakes, no death. That is until the vice regents decided that they would drop the vice and just be regents, king of their own lives, rebelling against God's word and God's instruction. And here we see fall, man sinning, sin entering the world, basically perverting everything that God had created to the extent that all of humanity inherits Adam's sin. We are by nature sinners, objects of God's wrath, and that there is nothing that we can do or, or try to do to try and put this right on our own. There is no, no effort of ours that can, that can reconcile us to God and bring us back into his favor. But this fall did not just affect all of humanity affected all of nature, creation as well. Because when man sinned, everything just started to disintegrate. Everything started to unravel and decay entered the world. Nothing really worked properly from that point on. Even creation, like man, was separated from God in a sense. And in the very beginning of its decay, from that point on, uh, we're told in the book of Romans that it creation itself longs for rescue and longs for renewal amazingly this is exactly what God promised at that time in Genesis 3 God promised one day he would make a way to deal with our sin that he would begin to bring everything everything all of creation under his loving rule again well how does he do that well really Ephesians 1 verse 7 has already made that clear through redemption in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us. Redemption, rescue, renewal comes through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who by his incarnation came to save sinners according to the Father's great love and eternal purpose. Crucified on the cross as our substitute. That's the pivotal point, the turning point of all of human history. The place where we are to gaze regularly. The place where we as Christians are called to gather others, to look here because there, this is, this is where it all starts to make sense. He died on the cross for our sin. He was raised again to life on the third day, ascended to the throne of glory and through his death through his resurrection God intends to bring redemption into every arena where sin has brought corruption where's that? everywhere everywhere this is what verse 10 tells us in Ephesians 1 the apostle Paul says that God is using the power of Christ's cross to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ this is new creation the new heaven and new earth I love that Cornelius Plantinga puts this so nicely in his description of what we will see of what we are heading towards that in the fullness of time in a thousand ways God will gather what's scattered rebuild what's broken restore what has been emptied out in a thousand ways God will put right what's wrong with this glorious creation to the praise of his glorious grace do you understand what this means that all things will be brought together in Christ under Christ 
that all things will be summed up in him. It means, as Isaiah 65 tells us, that never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his years. Or as Revelation 21 tells us, it means that the dwelling of God is with man, fully reconciled. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And here's what that means. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. In the new creation, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Death is dead. Love is one. Christ truly has conquered. That's why he is head over all. As king of kings and as lord of lords, acknowledged here by everyone, either to their judgment and eternal punishment in hell or salvation and eternal life in the new heaven and new earth. Now, needless to say, as we look around our world, we see currently this is not the case. We are not yet in the new heaven and new earth. This is not heaven. People are rejecting Jesus still, rebelling against his loving rule still by living for themselves, following after idols, setting rules for their own lives. But this, this is where we are heading. History is headed towards Jesus. He's our destination. History, of course, having been planned by Jesus as the designer. But what's the point of all that? What what is that before the dawn of time? And what does that at the end of time mean for us right now? What kind of difference should that make in our lives? Well, I think the third thing we need to see here is that history steered by Jesus He's the driver. I'm going to encroach slightly into verse 11 here, which I hope doesn't take away from Pastor Paul's sermon next week, but I've chosen to do so, and indeed I think the Lord has predetermined that I would do so in any case. What do we see in this? What kind of meaning is applied for us Today, that Jesus is the designer and Jesus is the destination. Do you know what it means? It means that life is not random. It means that life is not purposeless. Jesus is well and truly in the driving seat. Many would believe and argue that randomness rules. Nicola Morgan is an author of many, many children's books based here in Edinburgh and in a recent article uh, in a Christian magazine entitled Why I'm Not a Christian, this is what she says. I don't believe in any great plan. I believe just essentially that randomness rules. It's all just random chaos. Or at least there is some kind of 
automatic, impersonal, non-intelligent force, like some knock-on effect preceded by a big bang, but none of that really rules our lives. Or she sounds an awful lot like Richard Dawkins. I don't believe there's any comfort in that. I don't believe that these people who turn up the, the subwoofers of their atheistic objection to God are necessarily lacking compassion and care. They will cry with those who are bereaved. They'll be deeply concerned about what's going on in the Horn of Africa, but logically I don't think there's, there's any comfort in what they propagate. But grasp the comfort that there is not randomness, but a plan to know that Christ has planned something, that we're heading towards him, and that in the presence he is working that plan out. Look at, look at ver- what verse 11 tells us. God works out, what's the word? See it there? Begins with an E. See it. Everything. In conformity with what? The purpose of his will. His plan. Christ is doing something. Now, I get that that can be hard to hear. You mean Christ is doing something through this pain that I'm experiencing just now? Be that through bereavement or anxiety or illness or add anything you like. You mean that God is doing something through earthquakes and famines? I don't speak about this insensitively. But there is no comfort to think that God is not in control. That would be disastrous. God is doing something. He is at work in each and every one of our lives. From the very smallest detail, even to the big things, from the micro to the macro. And I think even God's plan does indeed include the little things that are that are going on in our lives. I think that's that's captured in the fact that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. He works out the little things in our lives, the decisions that we make. Don't think anything is by chance. Indeed, even in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, there's. there's Uh, A a verse which says the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. I think also in this, that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will means that God includes, God's plan even includes, weaves in our choices. Again, something that many have difficulty with. They think, well, it's just fatalism, but it's, It's not. Fatalism, of course, means that you are destined for something no matter what you do. Well, it's different here. Because what we read in Ephesians 1 is that it's essentially, verse 11 in particular, that God is weaving our choices into his eternal plan. And that God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, we should see that, yes, it does include the bad things. 
and yes, even our sin, though he is not the author of it. I think in the Old Testament, Joseph is the the perfect example of that, is he not? Remember Joseph? His father Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was... Yeah, Jacob did what every father should not do. Okay, there's a point of application for us. He had a favorite. Okay, Joseph was his his favorite. He gave him a nice coat. And he showed favor. And and Joseph became something of an arrogant chap in in a sense. And his brothers did not like this. So they, they sent, didn't they? They sold him into slavery in Egypt. And for a long time, uh, Joseph was, was in service. Then he was uh, accused of wrongdoing, which he didn't do, and then was imprisoned again, and later rose up to be essentially prime minister of Egypt, because God's hand was on him even through that difficulty. Then he's providing even in a time of food shortage for the people of Egypt to eat and for the people of the nations to come and eat the, the stores, the reserves that had been uh, kept by Egypt at Joseph's encouragement and by his plan. And who comes down to see him but his brothers? Oh, we're hungry. They don't recognize him. Well, Joseph reveals himself to them. And he forgives them. Why? Because he sees that God even used their sin to bring about good that he is even in control of that you intended it for evil he says God intends it for good God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will because he he is the designer who has laid out a plan for us he reigns, he rules the encouragement for us then is to follow him and to trust him. And for us, that can be hard, particularly in the church when things go wrong, when we, when we find there are things that, are, that happen that we struggle to make sense of. Maybe you're sitting here thinking even today, I don't know what this week will hold for us. You can be sure that for someone it involves suffering. It's Don Carson that says quite simply, live long enough, you will suffer. You can be sure of it. The question is, how are we going to respond? And my encouragement for you in relation to the membership of this church and to recognize that we are not in a church where rugged individualism is prized, but where community is prized, it's for these reasons. I want you to be able to help me when I'm despairing when something happens in my life that rocks the boat of my faith. Who's going to stabilize me? It's your job. It's our job for each other to say, look, he has a plan. And this, this is temporary. Look at what's coming. That's our job. Because we, the church, are the very vehicle of this plan. We, would you believe it? are a foretaste of what is to come. We're like a movie trailer in this world for the epic premiere of the return of Jesus Christ, the consummation of all things, 
for the coming together, the bringing together of all things under Christ who is head, to live with him forever, to see his face forever. What a thought. Thabiti Anya Willie says, what God will do at the end of history with all things throughout creation, listen, he is doing now as he saves sinners and unites them together into the church as we'll see in chapter 2 and as we'll see in chapter 3 of Ephesians, we are one body under the headship of Jesus Christ. So much so that John Stott says, the church is the first fruit of the full dominion of Christ. It is but a preliminary, I can't say it, the church is but a preliminary, transitory and serving institution. And for the time being, she is the only community on earth that consciously serves Jesus. This is what we're a part of. What difference is that going to make for how we live our lives this week? What difference does that make for how we plan to use the minutes and the moments of our day? Are we going to live for ourselves or are we living for the sake of the church The vehicle through which Jesus is displaying his glory and communicating his eternal plan to the world. This is what we're a part of. Isn't that thrilling? I can tell you're thrilled. It's incredible. Take comfort, brothers and sisters, in the fact that he is the designer. And that we're heading towards heaven. Not heaven. Heaven is not, I don't know, whatever you think it to be. It's him, it's Jesus. You know, it's not so that we can go there and have, you know, we'll not have any sin. Well, that's going to be amazing. I cannot wait for that. But fundamentally, it's not... I don't want to get to heaven because I I want to be free from sin. I do want to be free from sin. I want to get to heaven so I can see Jesus who redeemed me from sin's curse. Do you? Brother, friends, if you're here today, you're not a Christian. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ is the key to this. Without faith in him and a belief in that His work on the cross paid the penalty for your sin. That's not what you will see. And you need to come to him. And you do not know what this world, what will be thrown in your path this week. So you should make that decision today. What are we living for as a church? Are we living in the light of the eternal plan of our God and Savior? Tim Keller quotes this illustration in a number of his books. I'll use this to end. He likes to talk about Les Miserables. I think it's because he's from New York and there's lots of shows there. He quotes this bit at the end of Les Miserables, which says, Who will join our crusade? Will you stand with me? Somewhere beyond the barricade is a world we long to see. He says, Life is not living day to day wondering if you can afford a bigger house a better car a better retirement package if Christianity to you is simply a way for God to make you happier he says you're missing the point 
God's providence and God's eternal plan is about God's great glory. Not our personal happiness. So stand back, as it were, and look at the bigger picture. See what God is going to do and say to one another who will join our crusade, will you stand with me? Because somewhere beyond the barricade is a world we long to see. This is plan A. And there's no plan B. Let's pray.